Please turn with me to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. John 14, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Separation anxiety, many of you have likely heard of that. It is a part of child development, and it typically begins around 6 to 12 months after a baby is born, and it tends to peak at about 3 years old. And some of the symptoms of separation anxiety are being reluctant to leave a caregiver, crying, and throwing a temper tantrum when the caregiver goes away and leaves the child. And while it might peak around three years old, it can often continue into adulthood. These are abandonment, abandonment issues, a fear of being left alone by one you love. Now, I tell you this because the disciples in our text they have separation anxiety. They have abandonment issues, a fear of being abandoned by one they love. We've made it to the upper room discourse, the night Jesus would be betrayed, and they have anxiety. They have a fear that Jesus is going to leave them, and they don't know where he's going, and they don't want him to leave them. Jesus told Peter in John 13, 36, where he was going, Peter could not follow him. Not yet, at least. 
And Peter says, why can't I follow you? I'll lay down my life for you. I'll go with you anywhere. And Jesus tells him, you will follow me, but not quite yet. Soon you will deny me three times. So when Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled, in verse 1, he's speaking to people who are in panic mode. They're panicking because they don't know where he's going. And yet they're also panicking because they haven't been paying attention. This night was a long time coming. This night has been on the calendar for a very long time that one day Jesus would be betrayed. He would be betrayed by one of the disciples. He would be abandoned by his friends and eventually put to death. And he's been leading them along, giving them breadcrumbs along the way, as it were. In John 3, he talks about the Son of Man being lifted up, like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. In chapter 10, remember, he calls himself the Good Shepherd. And the Good Shepherd is the one who lays down his life for the sheep. So he's been leading them up to this night for a very long time. And here in verse 1, Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. He, more than anyone, had reason for a troubled heart. Because in just a little while, he would be betrayed. In just a little while, he would sweat drops of blood. He would pray to his father, and his father would not answer him. He would hear nothing. He would be all alone. He would be abandoned. And yet, isn't it amazing that in some of his darkest moments, Jesus' attention is on his disciples. He cares for their well-being. He cares about their heart. He's still focused on what they need, and they need comfort. And we need comfort too, don't we? Especially when God feels far away, when we seem to not know where God is or what he's doing in our lives, we need that comfort, even as those who know exactly where Jesus is right now, at his Father's right hand. And how much more is it the case for the disciples who don't know where he's going? And so Jesus tries to explain to them where he's going. He's going back to the Father, back to heaven, to prepare a place for them. He says, in, he says that in verse 3. But the disciples, and Thomas in particular, they don't understand what he's talking about. And this is very typical of the disciples throughout the Gospel of John. So in verse 5, Thomas says, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? And I think Jesus displays his patient heart here. He could have very easily said, Thomas, you've been with me For three years now, and you don't know where I'm going? You haven't been paying attention? I've been telling you what's about to happen to me. I've been telling you I'm going to die. And this is like the one time you don't have to act surprised, and you still don't get it. And yet he responds with further clarity, with patience. And in his response, we find our I am statement for this evening in verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
And he responds this way to comfort the doubting Thomas. Jesus wants to reassure Thomas that he already knows the way. He doesn't have to know all the details of where he's going, where Jesus is going. But if Thomas knows the way, he will be okay. It will work out for Thomas's good. And that's our main point. If you know the way, you will be okay. And so our headings are very simple. The way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the way to God, the truth from God, and gives us life with God. The way to God, the truth from God, and gives us life with God. First he says, I am the way. And he answers Thomas very directly. Thomas says in verse 5, Lord, we don't know where you are going And if we don't know where you are going, how can we know how to get there? And Thomas is thinking of a very physical location, a a physical place here on earth. And as is often the case, Jesus, he has to be very explicit with his disciples. He's talking about a spiritual home, not a physical location. He's talking talking about a heavenly home. And this is a very... Bold, bold claim to be the way to this heavenly home. There's a definite article, the way, not a way. It's a very exclusive claim. He claims all other ways to God will lead you away from God. And that's not a popular opinion today, is it? The idea that there's only one way to God. People usually believe there are multiple equally valid ways to get to God that all religions lead to the same place. They all roads lead to heaven. You've likely heard of that. And if we could just get past all of our differences, if we could not think about all the differences of the world religions today, then we would all get along. And we could all come together and sing Kumbaya and everything will be okay. And that sounds nice. But it is not loving, nor is it true. Back in the day before GPS and phones, people, I'm told, actually used to give out directions. (laughs) They used to actually use a map. Not Google Maps, but an actual map, like a paper one. And the way you knew you had the right directions was if the directions you got led you to the right destination. It got you to where you wanted to go. But if the directions led you in the wrong direction, then you would be thinking, well, these are some really, really bad directions. They led me the wrong way. They did not give me the truth. And now I'm scared for my life. No, we want directions that will lead us where we need to go, where we want to go. And if we care about people, we will give them good direction. And it's the same thing here. The claim to be the only way to the Father is bold but not bigoted. He loves you too much to let you think there are multiple ways to get to God. Especially when he knows he and only he has the right direction to the Father. Because he comes directly from the Father. That's why he would have the right direction. 
And so for him to act like there are other ways to God, that would not be loving of him. It would be like someone giving you bad directions on purpose. And yet, it's not that he just has the right directions or can point you in the right direction, but he himself remains the direction and the destination. He's the way to God, but he's also the end point. He's the end goal because he is God. We know he's God for two reasons in our text. One, because he uses the divine name here. He identifies himself with the divine name. Remember when God reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush? And remember the name that God called himself? I am who I am. And Jesus is calling to attention that name. He says, I am. I am the way to God. He, he's the everlasting God. He identifies himself with the God of the Old Testament. But two, we know he's also God because of what he says in verse 1. Verse 1, he says, believe in God, believe also in me. The first part, believe in God, is likely a reference to Deuteronomy 6.4, the Old Testament creed that every Jew would know by heart. The Lord, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Believe God. And yet Jesus says, and believe in me. Believe Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, but also in me. And in other words, he puts himself on this equal footing and equal platform with God himself. He makes himself an object of faith and belief. And in the Bible, only God is an object of faith and belief. Psalm 50, 56, David says, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. And here Jesus says, I am the object of faith. Believe in me. Trust in me. And through faith, we then have access to God. Remember, because of, because of the fall, we do not have access to God by nature. When Adam and Eve, they ate from the forbidden fruit, God, he blocked off the way of life. He blocked off communion with him. Remember the, the angel, the cherubim, with a flaming sword turning every way. We're told in Genesis 3.24, God drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The tree of life represented eternal life and communion and fellowship with God. And yet they were banned from that way. And if they tried to go back that way, then that cherubim, cherubim would kill them. They would die. And yet Jesus says, I am the way to God. I am the way back to the tree of life in paradise. If you come to me, I will get you back there. I am the way to eternal life. He opens up eternal life to all who would believe in him. The way to God is, is actually wide open. It is for anyone. There are no detours to it. It's not blocked off. And if you would just believe, then the way to God is yours. It is yours. And if you want to know if you're 
on the right path in life, if you want to know that you have communion and fellowship with God, then you need to come to the way. When you believe, you don't have to say, show me the Father, because you then have communion with the Father. Because when you behold Jesus in his gospel, you are beholding the Father who sent him. Because Jesus perfectly reveals his Father. And that's what he's getting at in verses 9 and 10. Have I, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father, Philip? I've been with you for so long and you still cannot tell. I've been about my father's business for so long. I've been doing the works that he commanded of me, doing exactly what he told me to do. And he says, I am in the father and the father is in me. At least believe on account of the works, as he says in verse 11. You don't have to say, show me the father, because Jesus truly and perfectly reveals his father. But what you need to say is not show me the Father, but show me Jesus. Show me him, and that is enough for me. And this leads us to our second point, the truth from God. Jesus is the truth because he reveals his Father. He truly reveals him. He provides a true revelation, a true presentation of who the Father is. And how often are we like Philip and say, well, show me the Father, Lord. We might not say those exact words, but I think we do it in other ways. We do it anytime we want some other revelation of God apart from the revelation of Jesus Christ. When we want some mystical experience that God is with us apart from communion and the means of grace. Or when we speculate about God, apart from the revelation that he's given us of himself in his son. In other words, we as God's people need to be content with Jesus, content with how he reveals the Father. And my question for you today is, is he enough for you? Is Jesus enough for you in in his word, in the sacraments, at the table? What, are you, what else are you looking for? Martin Luther, he refers to these competing ideas. He calls the one a theology of glory, the idea that we find our own way to God. We can climb our way to him apart from the means God has given us. We want to create our own way to God. It's the show me the father attitude that Philip has. And Moses had it too. Remember what he says? Show me your glory, Lord. Show me who you are. And yet, we forget that God's glory is too bright, too pure, too holy. And it would tear us to pieces. If we were to behold God in all of his glory and not have a glorified body, it would obliterate us. Our God is a consuming fire. And so remember, Moses has to be put in the cleft of the rock. No mere man can behold God's glory. Rather, we should want a theology 
of the cross. So on the one hand, you have a theology of glory. On the other, Luther calls it the theology of the cross. We should want to behold our glorious God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's a lot safer, and it is fitted to our finite and creaturely capacity. And it might not seem spectacular. It might not seem exciting. Bread and wine, they're just ordinary elements, aren't they? And even this book right here, this is God's word. It is a book, and it's the most precious book ever written. It's a life-giving book. But in the eyes of the world, it's not spectacular. God works through very ordinary Means. That's what they're called, the ordinary means of grace. And we might want to say with Philip, show us the Father, give me more, Lord. And the Lord says, you don't need anything more. I have given you all that you need. I am, I've been with you the entire time. And it might mean we're a commitment to the means of grace might mean that we're not the cool church on the block. But you better believe it means we are a people committed to Jesus Christ. Amen? So I would simply exhort you, do not despise the ordinary. Do not despise the day of small things because you might end up despising Jesus Christ who works mightily through very ordinary and small things. And now now while we must be content with Jesus Christ, who works very mightily through ordinary things, we can't deny that he did extraordinary things in his life. He worked many miracles. And we're told it was the Father who was working through him. In verse 10, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. When you look at Jesus, you're looking at the Father. They bear a family resemblance. Verse 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. When, you were, when you're younger, at least for me, you get really annoyed when people say, you look just like your mom. Or you look just like your dad. And I used to get this all the time at family reunions. And what made it worse is my dad and I, we actually have the same name. So not only do I look like him, I have his name. And even if you've adopted children, they pick up on your mannerisms, don't they? They pick up on your language. And you guys probably have your own inside jokes, your own internal code. Well, you want to know what Jesus loves? You want to know what Jesus wants from his people? He wants his people to say, you look just like your father. He wants us to recognize him as the one who bears the Father's image. And that, that's what Paul says in Colossians 1.15. He's the image of the invisible God. And so if you have a problem with Jesus, you have a problem with the Father. And if you have a problem with the Father, you have a problem with Jesus. Jesus gives us a true and accurate presentation of the Father. He's the truth from God. He's not just a prophet who bears true things about God, but he actually embodies the very truth the the prophets of old proclaimed. He's truth made flesh. 
He's truth incarnate. But many people disagree about what the truth is in our day and age. They'll say, well, that's just your truth. Jesus, that's only good for you, but I got my own truth. I have what's right for me, and what I have is working just right. But Jesus doesn't view truth that way, and praise God that he doesn't. He, he cares about you too much. He loves you too much to let you go astray and create and craft your own version of truth. There is a way that seems right to man, and yet in the end it leads to destruction. And there is no way to God without truth. Truth matters. The problem with all of these other religions is that all the other religions say, well, I can work my way to God. I can climb my way to him. And we can bypass truth. We don't have to think about truth because we're all going to the same place. And yet, when you bypass truth, you end up bypassing heaven in the process. Because you have to go around Jesus, who makes a very exclusive claim to be the truth. There is such a thing as truth. And all these religions cannot be true because they they contradict one another. All the religions of the world say, be true to yourself. Be true to yourself. Make your own way to God. Follow your heart. Climb your way to God. But Jesus, he came down. He reveals the truth. He says, I am the truth. He says, abandon your own truth and accept my truth. Well, what is his truth? His truth is that he came into this world to save you. He came into this world to redeem sinful people like you and me who did not want him, who had no good thoughts of God. We were wretched, and yet he still wanted us. He saw us making our own plans and using the world for our own desires and benefits. And yet he still came to save you. He died for you. And so how loving is it that he would make such an exclusive claim? Your way is not better. If I might be honest, your way is not better than God's way. God's way, the way to get to God, took the death of his only son. It was paved by Jesus' death. And so we ought not think, if you're here today and you think, and you think your way to God is, is better, that you can present your good works to God, then I, you're living a lie. That's what unbelief is. Unbelief is living a lie. It's not living in correspondence to what is true in the world. It's living as if God has not spoken. As if God, and that's what we would encounter on the boardwalk. People would say, God doesn't speak. He has not spoken. And yet here we find in our word, God has spoken. He has revealed himself in his son. And that's a beautiful truth. That's a beautiful truth. The good news today is that if you have this truth, If you have Jesus, then you have life. And very briefly, we'll cover this final point, life with God. Life with God. I think we could very easily 
talk about what we talked about last week with the resurrection and the life and the eternal life that Jesus gives to us. But I want us to remember the context we find ourselves in. Remember, we, we are at the upper room discourse, and in just a little while, Jesus will be betrayed and abandoned by his friends and die for his friends. And right now, the disciples need comfort. They're very confused right now. They're afraid right now. They have abandonment issues, a form of anxiety that occurs when you are about to lose a loved one. Jesus is going away, and they don't know where he's going. And they're asking, Lord, where are you going? We want to go with you. There's mystery. They don't quite understand what he's talking about. That he goes to prepare a place for them. That his father's house has many rooms. And so he's addressing a very particular need. A life that they need in that moment. When their Lord, their teacher, and their friend is about to leave them. A life that we need when God feels far away. And we're asking God, where are you in my situation? I can't find you. Are you really there? And yet God's word tells us he is there. Even in those darkest moments, your God is with you. That's why in verses 15 to 31, Jesus, he shifts his focus to talking about the Holy Spirit. He tells them that, he won't leave them as orphans. They won't be abandoned. They won't be left alone. But he's going to give them the Holy Spirit. And just like when you see Jesus, you see the Father, when you have the Holy Spirit, you have Jesus with you. And that is a word for someone here today. I, when, when you feel abandoned and alone and isolated, when you have separation anxiety, take your separation anxiety to your Savior because he knows where you are. He sees you. He's with you. And what a privilege this is. The disciples, they did not... We, what's interesting is that they had the privilege of walking with Jesus right next to him beholding him face to face. And we, we long for that. We want Jesus to be right here, don't we? And yet, Jesus tells us we are actually better off than them. We are better off than them. It is to our advantage that he went away. That's what he says in John chapter 16. So I want you to remember your God is very close to you. He might be ascended at the right hand, but he's near by his Holy Spirit. And because you have the Holy Spirit, you might not know what tomorrow holds. You might not know what the next month will hold. You may not know exactly what God is doing in your life. But you already know the way. And if you know the way, you will be okay. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have opened up the new and living way by your Son, that it is through his death that we 
may eat of the tree of life, that we have eternal life in him. And Father, this is a great privilege. We ought to praise you and give thanks for that. We often forget that though your son is exalted at your right hand, we have your Holy Spirit who is with us even in our darkest moments when we feel alone and isolated. And so, Lord, bring that to our remembrance. Help us to remember we have an advocate and a comforter. And help us to walk in this life so that whatever comes against us in whatever trial, we, are, we would know that you are with us. I pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.